begin again. All right. So this evening I'm going to speak about faith, faith, trusting our potential for transformation. So especially in this day and age we're living in, uh, I ask myself, what is going to help me keep going on in this life, on this path of practice, so that I don't give up on myself completely? I don't have a sense that I'd really go there, but I think of many people around me that it's difficult to uh, live through life and practice. So there's many conditions uh, that can activate other conditions within us of uneasiness and a lack of faith, doubt in ourselves. A lot of outer conditions are present now that bring us to that place of kind of feeling crumbled within. So we can feel destabilized by the loss of a sense of security in the world with how things are, sorrow and grief because of the injustices that we experience within ourselves and we see others go through, feeling fear just to be alive sometimes. We sense within ourselves and around us this sea of vulnerability that we're constantly feeling and becoming more used to developing more trust in our ability to navigate. But we need to know how to touch into that inviolable quality of faith that we can have in ourselves. I'd like to read a poem by David White. wrote about faith. The title of his poem is called Faith. I want to write about faith about the way the moon rises over the cold snow night after night, faithful even as it fades from fullness, slowly becoming that last curving and impossible sliver of light before the final darkness. But I have no faith in myself. I refuse it the smallest entry. Let this then, my small poem, like a new moon, slender, and barely open, be the first prayer that opens me to faith. It just seems like we have to make that first prayer, that intention over and over again, to stay open to what's happening, to have faith just in this moment, just in this step, just in this breath, and our ability to be aware of that moment. This this is a lot of what we learn how to do here. Tonight I'd like to talk mostly about the faith and how it's held in the Dhamma and faith in ourselves. So each one of us has come here to be on this training. Uh, Oftentimes, probably not you because all of you have had a certain amount of practice in retreats. But some people come to a retreat thinking that it's going to be some kind of a spa where you can just relax and not do much and have your own schedule. But here we have this training schedule and all of these 
uh, teachings scheduled for you to, so they can be applied bit by bit to your practice. So we've each come here on this ba- on the spiritual path with some sense of faith. We wouldn't be here unless we had some bit of faith in ourselves, in the ability to go forth on this path. Each of us has in our own ways some deep intuitive intelligence. We have experience that this path will bring benefit if we keep uh, bit by bit, step by step, doing our present moment awareness of whatever is happening. We know that some way it will bring some liberating insight to us and those insights will add up and eventually the purification of the mind and the deep wisdom that begins to fill the mind because of that purification will bring a transformation for us. We see the changes in our own lives and we see that those changes ripple out into the community we live in, just being around people who know us. So I was just telling the group that I was with just recently, a lot of them were parents, and I don't know why, it just happened that way. And uh, they came to this retreat and said, um, we're asking questions about how can we know, you know, that we're going to really open our hearts. And my answer to myself and to them is we can't really know. We really have to have faith in the possibility to awaken some kind of faith. So we may express it in our own different ways, but we each have this common yearning to deepen in inner peace. We don't know how it might be, or we don't know sometimes what that really, really means, but we've all had a taste of it somehow, some way, to some degree, And that taste keeps bringing us back to a retreat such as this. So we we know that that's our yearning, to have that kind of inner calm, that inner stillness, so there can be clarity to see things as they really are, not kind of believing in the projections and the beliefs systems that don't work, uh, but really being clear being less reactive towards ourselves, less reactive towards the world, so that that inner stillness and that clarity without reactivity can be there. So we're not seeing through the filters of that reactivity, filters of greed and hatred and delusion. So when the mind is seen clearly and there's some degree of inner stabilization and calm, no matter what stones are thrown into the pond of our hearts and minds, whatever discord that arises there, we know deeply that that will return to some stillness, some clarity, some ability to have wisdom to find the way in that very moment and beyond. That inner ripples will quiet down and that stillness will help us see and then respond in the appropriate, most beneficial ways. So we have that yearning. 
And we have that yearning to be more and more at ease with how we can be actually with our moment-to-moment experience. Maybe we don't know how to articulate this sometimes, but that deep spiritual yearning is there for each one of us in our own ways. So here in this training and in this deepening uh, because of that training, we're learning to establish skill sets that we've talked about and given voice to a bit uh, just even this during this full day and part of last night. The skill sets of relaxing, which Temple spoke so beautifully of this morning. The skill sets also mentioned of having no agenda. How can we really be in this moment-to-moment experience with not this tightening around how we would like it to be or this fear of how it might be, but just no agenda at all to be completely relaxed and open and clear in the moment, allowing what is arising to arise and to be known because actually it cannot be otherwise and we learn that over and over again. We learn to just allow the mind, mindfulness to reflect, to see what's going on in the present moment because this is what's happening. It cannot be otherwise. It's already arising. So how can there be this skill set to just relax, be interested in it, and just know that moment. So have that interest and that awareness moment to moment to know what's happening. And when that pure knowing goes on in relationship to what's happening, there's no other moments of attitudes of mind that are not beneficial. There, there is a possibility for those unwholesome attitudes to not arise, to maintain that clarity in the mind and in the heart because the other qualities of being continuous, of being interested, of being allowing, of relaxing and bringing pure, powerful awareness to that moment is what is really happening doesn't, when those beautiful, wholesome qualities are in the mind, it does not allow the unwholesome qualities to come in the mind. That's pretty much one of the ways it works with awareness when it gets really strong with those attending qualities. So the deep habits and the default settings of the mind begin to be known um, in this moment-to-moment experience. So we may, maybe we have the first arrow of knowing that habit pattern of mind, but not a second arrow of refusing to see it in ignorance or pushing back at it in aversion or wanting something different. So it's just that moment and the knowing of it moment by moment. So we get a sense of that ability to be free from the tenacious, even secondary habit patterns that kind of uh, habituate themselves in reactivity to the first habit pattern causes a lot of layers of pain. So as we're here in practice, each one of you knows from your own experience that that doesn't have to happen sometimes when these skill sets are really 
inculcated in the training that we're doing here together. So that yearning is the spiritual aspiration to go towards what is yet unknown. So if we're, if we're honest with ourselves and we're, we have some spiritual intelligence, it's, this practice is not about just going back to those places of calm, to re-experience new moments of calm. That can be there, of course, and they're the precursors to deeper things that may happen. But our intention can be to open to what is unknown, to what has not yet been known. So we can grow from that and not just re-experience the beautiful, um, you know, concentration, calm, and even equanimity. Those are practices or experiences along the way, but they're, they're onward leading. But we can stay in parking lots in those times for a long, long time if that's what we think we're coming to practice for because then we just experience them over and over, instead of opening our hearts and minds to what hasn't yet been known. So this quality of faith is incredibly important in terms of being uh, willing to open to the unknown, to what is yet a mystery, still a mystery. Because that those are the uh, pieces of the puzzle that we still need in order to open the mind and heart, and to release what isn't necessary, the unwholesome states of mind. And that will, at the same time, engender wholesome states of mind. It's kind of how it works in this practice. This is a real birth of faith when we're able to do that, being able to have that kind of faith in ourselves, faith in the practice, in the Dhamma. You have that already to some degree. Faith in yourselves, faith in the Dhamma because you're here and you've practiced and you're willing to invest a month or two of your lives to uh, keep going on, to make whatever has happened in the past to be onward leading and to open to what is yet unknown. So, we might even experience faith as more powerfully a spiritual urgency. There's a word in the ancient language of Pali. Pali is a language that the Buddhist teachings were first translated in, uh, in, into and given to others to be able to hear and read. So that word in Pali describes this deep spiritual urgency to purify the mind and the heart from greed, hatred, and delusion. I've learned in the tradition that I was kind of raised in, in the Dharma, that it's better for me to use purification than enlightenment. Because in purification, it sort of instills in our minds and hearts this idea of continually letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's not something that we're really going to gain Uh, It's not something that we're going to gain out there, just kind of go after something in the near or distant future. Uh, But it's something that actually we're losing. Those tendencies and those roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. So that word is samvega. 
for those of you who are making notes, it's S-A-M, like in Mary, V, like in Vic, Victory, E-G-A, Samvega or Samvega. I love this description of Samvega by Larry Rosenberg, as uh, a senior teacher and founder of the Cambridge Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. Samvega leads to the conversion, the freeing of the heart from an egocentric existence to a search for what is timeless, vast, and sacred. So this is our our practice here. This is our path. This is how we here uh, guiding during this time have all learned to impart, to take in, to try for ourselves, and to part what impart what we have known as uh, valuable in the practice. So in our own unique ways, we have felt this samvega, this spiritual urgency, and um, deeply in ourselves. I mean, when I say we, I mean all of us here, not just us who are, who are offering the Dharma, uh, that being our role during this, this time. This is a spiritual need that we have, a deep, deep spiritual need that we've all realized to some degree because we're here. It's not sur- need for survival, which is very different. And we have to handle this with a lot of care and subtlety. It's rather than running around in a kind of like a survival mode, it's more keeping still. Rather than talking things out, it's more being uh, quiet, uh, not totally silent because you're able to ask questions and be in groups where, uh, in one-to-one experiences with us where we can uh, have a conversation with you. But there's a quietness that happens, a stilling of words so that it goes more to experience. When I say the word aspiration, I don't mean an attachment to some goal. That's why I don't use the word enlightenment so much. But it's more uh, like an aspiration is more like being on a path and you know where the distant, there might be something uh, uh, that we tread along that path that gives, shines light upon the next path step and the next step and the next step and we know it's onward leading but we don't really know exactly what it is we know it's a, a sense of deep peace unconditional peace in that way and the happiness that is peace this quiet deep kind of contentment and happiness it isn't looking for anything else but really okay and clear and compassionate if that's was what's needed uh, to respond to in that moment. So this aspiration is more like an open-ended journey. And along the way, we take great care to recognize the habit patterns of the mind that arise in the areas of greed, hatred, and delusion, and not feed those patterns, but to simply be aware because when any one of moments of those patterns arise and there is this simplicity and purity of awareness that arises with it, that moment weakens 
and bit by bit, time by time, when uh, the objects arise around greed, hatred, and delusion, and, and this strong awareness arises with it, those objects don't carry as much traction in the mind. And they less and less return, and in time they get what we call in the practice uprooted, and um, they don't come up as much or eventually any more in the mind. That's like the mind of a Buddha. So this is our path of practice, and it, it takes time. And along the way, we can enjoy many moments of a sense of purification, a sense of truly having that courage to be free. So it's such a dynamic process of awakening that we're undertaking. We're letting go of um, default settings in the mind that aren't useful, that cause pain to ourselves and others. But we're also awakening dormant capacities of goodness and wisdom in the mind. Because when those experiences, unwholesome mind states aren't there, we can see with much more clarity what is useful, what is really wise. And our mind can go there much more easily. We really begin to trust our practice and trust our highest potential as human beings. So I want to talk about a faith in terms of my own practice. Um, I re- I'm remembering a time when I first ordained uh, temporarily. I took up ordination as a nun in Burma. And this was the first time I did that ordination on a temporary basis. And I was in my 50s. My children were mostly grown already and it was okay to leave them for some months. And so it was, a, it was a very difficult time of my life. I was going through a lot of hormonal changes, if a lot of you would know what I mean. <laughs> hot flashes in a hot country with a nun's robes, many layers to wear. <laughs> the inner layer, the skirt, the inner robe, the outer robe, the you know sash that you wear over you, your left shoulder to indicate you're a daughter of the Buddha, and just, you know, high neckline, sleeves down to here in tropical weather. I mean, whoever designed this was like not, well, I won't go further. Um, <laughs> so anyway, it was so challenging. And I, I, you know, I just couldn't wait to get to my kuti and take off at least the outer robe and wear the informal inner robe. So um, when I went to my teacher, and who's also been, um, I think both even James's teacher and uh, Temple's teacher, I'm sure that is so, Upandita, Seda Upandita, I um, went to my first uh, check-in with him, and he said, why did you come here to practice so far away from comforts of your home, and you know this is not easy to do, you know, this kind of schedule that you have and what's called upon from you, the food, the weather, the conditions, not very easy. So I replied 
that my intention was to continue my practice of purifying my heart. That's what I knew that needed to do, needed to happen. I have great faith in this understanding that those um, ways that greed, hatred, and delusion manifest, when awareness uh, is brought up with those particular objects, those objects can fall away and weaken, and they don't have to return as strongly as they do, depending a lot upon many conditions, though, upon karma, conditions of the moment, how we're responding, what degree of wisdom and openness is there. But I I really believe that uh, and have seen that that happens. So my heart was willing to venture beyond anything I had ever experienced before. And somehow in my heart I knew that it was really important for me to ordain as a nun, that that's not for everybody uh, to ordain, take on robes, uh, whatever your gender is, but it is, it was for me because I felt I needed a certain amount of renunciation in order to really let go of whatever came up in the mind and the heart. So Upandito knows me well, he's been my, uh, my teacher since way back, since the 80s. <clears throat> so he's my teacher for over 30 years before he died, or more than that maybe. He said something very interesting and he used a word which at that time kind of surprised me. He said, in order to do this, to go beyond what you venture beyond what you've already known in your practice, you must be willing to invest everything you have in your practice. In other words, he was saying make a full commitment to invest whatever you have meant that to check out those wholesome qualities of mind, that level of awareness that has already been developed, and really use it. And, I mean, he and also our grandfather teacher, who was his teacher, Mahasi Seda, would come right out and say, don't be lazy. And just really bring up, not that kind of striving energy, but that moment-to-moment energy of continuity in our practice. So what he meant was that I needed to recognize and bring forth and then invest those wholesome forces that have already been developed to some degree into my practice already. And when thoughts that, oh, I can't do it, come up, just the opposite of faith, just to be able to see that thought is just another thing going by, just another cloud passing, or maybe it's more you know, uh, like maybe it's a bird flying by or maybe it's a cyclone or something, but not to believe the thoughts even when they're so strong that we can't do this. So most of all what I needed was the energy of faith in, in the Dharma and faith in myself. I have a lot of faith in the Dharma. The hardest place for me to find faith during difficult times is faith in myself. So this word sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A, sadha, is a word for faith. And um, it's described as seeking the good. Seeking the good. Whereas um, 
the wanting mind or uh, the the craving mind, tanha, goes after what is not wholesome. Faith goes after what is wholesome. So they both seek something. Tanha seeks what is unwholesome. Uh, it's a craving mind. And sada seeks what is good. Seeking what is of the highest spiritual value to us. So it's said that faith is regarded as a wise hand that takes hold of what is truly uh, valuable. So it goes out and it actually takes hold of it, but not like tanha, not like uh, craving that goes out and does that just kind of with a closed fist, just brings it towards us and won't let go. But this is a, a wise hand that takes hold of what's truly valuable in terms of our highest aspirations. So faith seeks out opportunities that fulfill our most noble aspirations. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I've come to practice having a lot of faith and maybe my faith in myself is not so um, uh, always there for me. I have a lot of faith in the Dharma. It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but when I don't have uh, faith in myself, I have to remind myself of what is my most noble aspiration? What is that? And I forget what that is sometimes. And even I wonder sometimes whether we come to practice and we don't even know what our most noble aspiration is. So <clears throat> the hand that seeks out faith seeks out opportunities that fulfill these aspirations, like seeking spiritual counsel, friendships, spir- having spiritual friendships and friends. It also seeks out hearing and reading the Dharma, the truth of how it is, this incredible opportunity that we all have to come here and simply listen to the Dharma with a quieter and quieter mind that just can let it in, maybe. And um, maybe it gets kind of seated in our minds and hearts and somehow that can come up of its own sometime when the, when the, um, all the conditions are ripe. Opportunities to practice in this way of noble silence and this noble solitude so that the Dhamma, the truth, can be realized. So that word in Pali, sada, is more like a verb than a noun, actually. Its characteristic is to establish trust, to establish trust. So this is a verb, to establish trust in the Dharma, in ourselves, in our teachers, and... um, uh, our ability to navigate the terrain of our practice, guided by those we trust. I like the way Sharon Salzberg, one of our colleagues, puts it, to place your heart upon, to place your heart upon. So this devotion in the Dharma has a lot to do with uh, devotion to and respect for teachers, to the Buddha, to the Dharma, and to the Sangha, spiritual friendship, 
but deep in a in the deepest way it's devotion to our commitment to practice that is our most close to us most intimate devotion the, through the experience of our practice with good spiritual guidance we can gain trust that we can actually do it it's said that the one of the functions of faith is being able to overcome the opposition. So the opposition is fear, resistance, doubt, feelings of inadequacy, and um, a discursive mind. Too much thinking about the Dharma rather than actually practicing the Dharma. It's uh, one of the... um, manifestations of doubt actually is over-intellectualization of the Dharma. So that's why we're here in the simplest way learning how to carry out this practice. So I had quite a bit of, uh, of difficulty during that time of practice when I went to Burma for the first time to um, ordain I went another time after that uh, to ordain temporarily, but this was a particularly rigorous time. Waking up at three in the morning, had to be in the hall and and nearby the hall to do walking practice outside in the kind of coolish weather, but still warm by by our standards here. And um, followed by sitting at four o'clock and chanting and then going to the Dhamma Hall for meals. There is there we have to practice meditation formally, also in eating. So it was a lonely time. Loneliness is a huge hindrance for me. I'm a family person. I love being home. I love being around my family, <clears throat> close friends. So I get a lot of homesickness, major hindrance in my practice. <laughs> How many of you have homesickness for in your practice? Yeah. So it gave me many opportunities to feel the strength of faith and confidence so I could sustain my practice when I was there. Coming a long way, sacrificing a lot, being away from the family and sacrificing monetarily also. Um, a lot of hindrances came up during that time. And I really had to rely on my faith. Both uh, my, my main teachers from the beginning were Anagarika Munindra of India, and then he sent me to Upandita of Burma. And um, they were good teachers to have faith in, so it was easy to have faith in my teachers. They say that there are three areas of faith uh, that we can benefit from. We can really see for ourselves, do we have that? So the first one is faith in our teachers and those uh, teachers who have had an experience of the Dhamma, who know the way to a certain degree. Maybe they're not total, uh, you know, fully enlightened beings, but there are stages along the way where the mind can be very, very purified and teachers can those teachers can also know the way um, very profoundly and clearly. 
So basically, the three faiths that we have, faith in the teachers, faith in the teachings, and faith in oneself. So a little about faith in the teachers, some basic guidelines. Of course, we're careful who to choose as teachers, teachers who embody the teachings, not just in how many students or how popular they may be, but can they embody the teachings in the way that we could have trust in, that we personally as human beings can trust and we're able to (coughs) take their advice and use them in our lives. Are they living in alignment with the basic principles of non-harming? That's a very important way to choose a teacher. Are they examples of compassion and wisdom? Do they walk their talk? So basically, that's faith in teachers. And faith, uh, I, for myself, when I was guided to go to the Dhamma, I really had a lot of faith in my first teacher, Anagarika Munindra. What stood out at the forefront to me was his compassion, but uh, he also had a lot of wisdom. So compassion was in the foreground, very connecting to being human. And if you asked him a question, he exemplified a huge amount of wisdom by answering in multifaceted ways. In fact, there's an old story about Manindra that both Joseph and I tell, Joseph Goldstein, um, that if you asked him a question, he wouldn't stop answering that question until the last person in the room left because he he would really have so much to to respond to and every one thing connected to another connected to another and pretty soon you had from the four noble truths to dependent origination everything in between and further even so um, it was interesting to be around <laughs> he exemplified compassion and kindness he was very interested in in oneself as a human being, but very learned also. So I, after practicing with uh, Munindraji for a number of years, probably ten years, then I went to practice with Upandita. He is known to be a very strict and fierce teacher, and um, he's known as a Virya Sayadaw. Virya means energy but not forceful energy. He always meant to imply continuous, gentle, persevering, clear energy. But people would take it differently and would just try too hard and have so many agendas to get to enlightenment that um, it was not in the best interest of, of their practice, actually. So I didn't take all that striving in as what he was saying. I just followed the directions and luckily I had Manindra first as a teacher because he taught me a lot of gentleness in my practice and that's kind of the way I am in life anyway. So I just learned how to be persevering, more persevering in a gentle way with my moment-to-moment experience. So the wisdom and precision of Upandita was in the foreground and his, along with his fierceness and his compassion was quietly always there uh, with me. It was 
something I, in in retrospect, I greatly appreciate someone who's been a teacher to me, who's had that fierce compassion, that what he wants deeply for all of his students is for them to be totally transformed, that greed, hatred, and delusion no longer would exist in their mind stream, but only love and wisdom and generosity and everything that goes with it, all the beautiful qualities of mind. So just to name one experience um, about how he can be so fiercely compassionate. And I, I really took it in. I wasn't afraid of that. I went to visit him once in Oregon. I was nearby. I have family members in Oregon. So I was nearby, and I went down to visit him where there was a retreat, a two-month retreat going. And um, I hadn't seen him maybe in two or three years or maybe more, and I was really happy to see him. He has had a huge impact in my life. So I went, um, I offered a meal to, uh, offered a meal for all the monks and and the yogis and and went to um, be there when the when the offering was done, because in the tradition of Burma, uh, when you offer a meal, it, to watch people who are eating, to be there when people are eating the meal that you offered, can bring a lot of happiness. And that's very important part of practice, to be happy from that generosity that one has given. So I went there to do that, and went to pay my respects to him. So when I was about doing my three bows to him. Um, and then I said, I'm, I'm very happy to see you, Sayadawji, which means beloved teacher, Sayadawji, I'm very happy to see you. And he's, he doesn't say very much. He just nodded and, how are you? How is your practice? It's things like that. Few sentences. And then he right after I said, happy to see you, he did say something um, in Burmese, which the, the translator did not translate back to me. All the rest was translated, like, how are you? How's your practice? So when we were leaving, <clears throat> the translator said, do you want to know what he said after I said, I'm very happy to see you? And I wasn't sure whether to say yes or no. But I said, okay, what did he say? And uh, the translator said, Sayadawji said, I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to make you mindful. (laughs) So that's true, right? It's not about being happy because that person is my teacher or he said the right thing to me or um, he gave me some nice pats on the back, something like that. His only job was to make you so mindful that your mind would be released from greed, hatred, and delusion. That's what he felt towards all his students. Some students couldn't take it. So faith in the teachers and faith in the teachings. There's a saying, Ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. Have enough faith to try it out and test it out for yourself. That's what ehipasiko means. Not to believe blindly. See for yourself. 
when a group of people called the Kalamas uh, during the time of the Buddha went to him and said that they'd been visited by many religious teachers with so many different views. And they were perplexed and asked what to do. Now the Buddha never placed demands on people's faith. He asked them to test it out for oneself and then to know for oneself, is this the path to, for the purification of greed, hatred, and delusion leading to that unconditional peace and happiness in one's mind? So this is what the Buddha's reply was. Do not go upon what is being acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor or scriptures, nor upon your biased opinion, nor upon the consideration that this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves these things are unwholesome, blamable, censored by the wise, when undertaken and observed, these things lead to harm, then relinquish them. However, when you, when you yourselves know these things are good, blameless, praised by the wise, when undertaken and observed, you know these things will lead to benefit and happiness, then enter and abide in them. So basically saying, try it out for yourselves. So there's faith in our teachers, faith in the teachings, and now faith in oneself. So here, um, there are different kinds of faith that we can have in ourselves in relationship to our practice, in relationship to life. There can be blind faith, there can be bright faith, and there can be verified faith. So in a nutshell, what blind faith is, is when we can't totally trust our own experience because we don't really totally know ourselves. It's hard to trust ourselves if we really don't know all parts of ourselves. You know, there might be sometimes when we're just, um, we know that we can get overwhelmed by certain thought patterns or by certain attitudes of mind and we can kind of roll around on them, in them for a long time. So when we come to know ourselves as we are here, we begin to have more trust because we know ourselves completely. This is a lovely saying by Rilke who said, let no place in me hold itself closed for where I am closed, I am false. So saying that not really authentic there because not really authentic, authentically understanding, knowing oneself. So in blind faith, we sometimes can misplace our trust in others. We are content to live vicariously through their accomplishments, but just admiring them and agreeing with how they're expressing uh, the, their truth or the path, we're not practicing really ourselves. So here we're doing the opposite. We're really coming to know this moment-to-moment uh, -moment experience within ourselves in relationship to what's going on around us. And so that um, when we keep doing this, we might begin to have bright faith. This is when 
a person, a reading, a place inspires us to go more and more deeply in our practice, that experience illuminates new possibilities for our potential, that our faith is bright, and maybe sometimes someone around us still has brighter faith than we do, so we might depend on that person's faith. So I remember I had to borrow Manindra's faith in me a lot when I was just starting out in the Dharma. I was raising children as a single parent and as a householder, and I had a lot of things on my mind. And I couldn't always, you know, my mind would tumble into areas, and I didn't have as much faith in me then, of course. I was just starting out on the path. Manindra would tell me stories about a relative of his named Deepama. And so some of you have heard of Deepama, right? Read some of that, uh, her story. And um, she had practiced in a way that Manindra said even surpassed him in in her uh, understanding and her deepening and her purification her accomplishments of purificating her purifying her mind and her heart were very very palpable she became a reason for bright faith to arise in me when i heard the stories about her i never got to meet her she was actually supposed to come and live um, with me for a few months but she died before that time and she wasn't very well and they wanted to send her to a place where she might feel more in, uh, comfortable in the climate, say, where I live in Hawaii, very close to the c- climate she lived in, in India. But I learned so much about her and connected with her because so many people around me, especially uh, Manindra, knew her and was her teacher. Manindra was actually guided <laughs> Deepama to go further than where he was. So she was a mother and had become a widow and went through tremendous suffering. She had faith in herself and in the Dhamma and her teachers and that level of suffering needed a commensurate level of faith in order to be with that and so her mind just opened and everything that was not beneficial, or most of it, uh, you would say, fell out of her mind. So those were days when stories of housewives and uh, uh, all people of all genders, of all ages, lay people became uh, fully purified, enlightened, they say, experienced the Dhamma. In in Asian countries, they use a kind of um, uh, code, Oh, that person has experienced the Dhamma. That means they've experienced some path of purification. So she made me feel like if she could do it, I could do it too. So she was a lot of bright faith for me. So verified faith, that's blind faith, bright faith, and verified faith. This is the third kind of faith, is when we have trained in the skills to deal with all manner of experiences that come through our minds and our hearts and bodies. And we have the courage to face them 
and to know the skills sets that we bring up, those skill sets that we have learned to uh, to be able to navigate that area of our practice. And deeper and deeper we go in the practice then. When I know when times when it was difficult for me and I had to borrow some of Manindra's faith, he would say, yes, yes, I have faith in you, but you have to have faith in yourself. It's like the Buddha solved, solved his problem. You have to solve your own problem. I can't solve it for you. So as compassionate as he was, he would say that very directly uh, to me. And one thing about having a teacher that when we choose a teacher, it's good to choose a teacher that you are willing to take their admonition from. You're willing to take their advice from because if you're not willing to take their advice, then there's, there's, you won't have faith in yourself because you're not going to carry out something. And maybe that advice can be you know, cut to the chase, but sometimes that's what we need. So some qualities it takes to support the development of that kind of faith in oneself is this willingness to venture beyond the familiar, the willingness to venture beyond comfortable terrain, Humility to develop the skills to navigate that terrain. Trungpa Rinpoche said, spiritual awakening is one humiliation after another. So it's not humiliation. It's I mean, we go through hard times and if we can incline the mind towards being humble about experiencing that instead of that humiliation, you know, oh poor me and whatever else comes with it then that would be onward leading. So also having enduring interest, curiosity, and continuity of effort in our practice. These are things that will help us along the way. So it's said that the conditions that support and nourish seeds of faith in addition to the ones I just mentioned, are virtuous conduct in body, speech, and mind. Virtuous conduct. So we're taking these um, precepts um, frequently. We'll be, once in a while, I'll come into the hall early in the morning and offer the precepts to you so we can take them together. We usually do that in Burma every single morning. We chant the precepts to remind ourselves that this is our commitment to non-harming. That's an incredible um, support for our practice. So virtuous conduct in body, speech, and mind, having non-harming attitudes in the mind so that we are not harming through our speech and behavior. Generosity also is very supportive because it supports this letting go process. That if it can happen in life, then it can happen, you know, in in terms of relationship to life where we can let go of our time, of our energy, of sometimes giving of food and helping others in that way. This is really helping our own inner process to let go more easily. Understanding the laws of cause and respecting the laws of cause and effect, 
this is really important. The courage to put forth the energy needed for liberation, that gentle, persevering effort. And most of all, not giving up on oneself so that we can keep on going on the path and bringing that devotion to our commitment to ourselves to do this practice. This is what we're here for. And are we using our time in the best way possible? So just taking one moment at a time, one step at a time, one experience at a time, not getting too far ahead of ourselves, this is what's going to keep our faith going. Just faith that we can do one moment. Put the energy there with awareness another moment. Not putting our leaning too much into the future like we want a certain thing to happen. But just awareness to come up moment to moment. So I'd like to end with these uh, words saying something similarly by Martin Luther King Jr. Faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. Stepping into the unknown. So may that be so for our practice. So let's sit quietly for a moment and let all of the words dissolve. Let's be with our own experience. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. Please come back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.